You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon this morning. This, sorry, the darkness of the world. The darkness of the world. Darkness of the world. Uh, this morning, we are getting back into our Gospel of John series. Next week, we're taking a break. Uh, we're going to have Elder Benji come up and uh, preach a standalone sermon. I'm going to use that time to prep uh, for the retreat that's coming up. I hope everyone's excited for that. And I want to, yeah, that's right. Last, last time we had the retreat, it was amazing. It was exciting. And I uh, just want to make sure that the word and the, the, the sessions that we're going to have that weekend is, is very uh, in tune with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit wants us to receive during that, uh, that special weekend, that retreat weekend. And so I'm going to take next week uh, and the following week to just prepare for that. Um, with all that said, we are getting back into our Gospel of John series. And with the title that I just mentioned, The Darkness of the World, you can probably guess what we're going to be talking about today. And of course, that is most likely the depravity of man. And you're probably thinking, ah, oh, another sermon on the depravity of man. Like, this is the only thing that Pastor Ian talks about. What is this? And, uh, you know, I get it. I think uh, any preacher would like to preach on something much, much more pleasant, maybe easier to the ears, right? Something more encouraging or uplifting, maybe something to address our worldly trials. But there is a reason for why we touch on this topic so often. Um, for one thing, it's, it's to be faithful to the text. I believe this is what John is getting at in our passage this morning, and we'll talk about that shortly. But in addition to that, what we have to understand in the Christian life, in the process of, of our conversion and in between uh, glory, is that idea of sanctification. And in the process of sanctification, part of what we discover and what we learn is that as we walk with God, as we pursue Him in our relationship with Him in this life, is that we discover that we are more and more weak to do so. We are more and more impotent to sustain our relationship, our walk with Him, and that we desperately need Him to help us in our weaknesses. That it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are sanctified and are changed and are empowered to do His will in this life. It's only by His grace and by His will and by His Holy Spirit that we are truly changed. And, 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 and I'm sure you all see this in your life. You know, for myself, being a parent, a third one on the way, and the busyness of just that, that sector of my life plus ministry and everything else. I can't help but see how much I need God's grace all the more. I can't help but see my, 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 my inability to sustain not just my earthly relationships, but my own relationship with the Lord. And this is why we talk on this topic of total depravity, because it reminds us of our desperate need, our desperate cry for help from the Savior. It reminds us that without the Holy Spirit quickening the dead man, we cannot do anything for God. 
We cannot live the life that we are called to live for the Lord. And so, again, whenever we talk about sin and depravity, the hope is to lay upon us the weight, the gravity of sin once more so that grace tastes all the more sweet. It's like um, a famous quote from that Puritan preacher I, I, I keep quoting nowadays, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That is a point for these sermons until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So in regards, so, so there's that aspect of why we, talk, we, we cover this topic of total depravity and, and our sinful uh, nature. But in regards to being faithful to the text, I believe this is what John's intent is in our passage. And oftentimes when he talks about these things through his gospel. When we're talking about, um, if, if you recall in John's gospel so far, we see John in many ways presenting Christ as, as the Son of God, as the, the Christ. Remember, that is his thesis. That is his thesis that, that, we, that the, the, his readers are to believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God, the Christ, and that by believing, they might have life. But in addition to that, the backdrop of that great uh, advent of Christ coming to the world is the darkness of it. It's the darkness of humanity. And we see this time and time again in, in, in John's gospel, but also, outside, uh, also elsewhere in scripture. Uh, that great passage in Romans, Paul says, Romans chapter 3 verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And again, there is no better example of the depravity of man that Paul's talking about in Romans than the example of the Jews in our, in our passage in the Gospel of John and Christ's interaction with them. So far in John's Gospel, Christ has demonstrated his divinity, explicitly declared that he is the Son of God, equal to God in power, in nature, and in authority. And after even all the miracles that he performs, he is time and time again rejected by the people. He is doubted. He is sought off after to be killed, even in the last chapters that we've read. And again, it's no different in our passage. Uh, the content of our passage this morning is no different than what John has already stated in other passages. It's very similar to chapter 5 and even chapter 7 uh, in terms of there being witnesses and, and Jesus having to provide witnesses to the Pharisees that we just read. He talks about that in chapter 5 as well, where he gives three witnesses, John the Baptist, the Father, and even Moses himself, the, Moses himself in, in Scripture, in the Word of God. Or when he talks about the son's authority to judge in our passage, that's, that's a parallel to chapter 5 as well when he says, For the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. Or he says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear. I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So there's a lot of parallels already between this, what we, our passage this morning and what John's already stated or what Jesus already um, preached in, to the, the masses in the previous chapters. 
Even the end of our, of our passage where he makes a judgment on the Pharisees and he says, and he calls them out on their ignorance and saying, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. He already said that in chapter 5. So there's nothing new in terms of content in our passage where there is difference, where, is, where there is the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 8 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 is the context of when he is saying these things and who he is saying it to. First and foremost, Jesus is saying these statements after he makes, he makes the, great second, the, the great I am statement, the, the second I am statement in the Gospel of John. Remember that we talked about this last week. I am the light of the world. A great invitation that, that explicitly proclaims him as that the prophesied light that was coming, that, that the, old, the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about would come and bring the light of God, bring the presence of God, bring the protection of God, and lead his people. This is Jesus' second declaration of, I am the light of the world. This isn't happening after uh, a healing on the Sabbath, which is what happens in chapter 5. This isn't happening during a, a circumstance where the Jews thought that Jesus was breaking the law and therefore they were arguing with him. This happens after an invitation, a preaching of the gospel. It happens after, after Jesus presents the good that he has come to give and secondly, who is he, he preaching this to? So that's, so that's when he, 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 he says these things, but who is he specifically talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees here. In chapter 5, he's speaking to the Jews. And sure, there were some Pharisees there, but in generally, I remember what I said, whenever John uses the word Jews or the term Jews, he's talking more so of the system of the religious Jewish faith. The religious aristocracy, so you had, uh, you had the, the Pharisees, you had the, San, the, the Sadducees there, or the overall Sanhedrin that governed the people. He's talking about that whenever he refers to the Jews. But here in our passage, he's talking specifically to Pharisees. A group, uh, uh, the religious group of, uh, of, uh, in the Jewish faith who were so committed to the law of Moses, to the Torah, who in an early age was raised to memorize Scripture. Word for word. Who studied it day and night. Who practiced the law to the letter. Who followed not just the, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, but all these rabbinical teachings. Just to be in step with what they thought was God's will and word. These were the ultra-conservative, the orthodox Jews. They were, and, and, and as our passage states, these weren't just any normal Pharisees. These were temple Pharisees. These guys were the ones from head office that Jesus was talking to. So you can imagine just how entrenched they were in their ideologies and their belief systems and their religiosities and, and in their, their cleansing rituals. Yet despite all those credentials, despite their titles and accolades and their, their, their lifelong commitment to the study of God's word, Jesus has the same judgment on them in verse 19. You know, no, you know neither me nor my father. And now here's the indictment for all of humanity just from our passage, what John is trying to get at, right? 
If the Pharisees who studied scripture day and night from an early age, who walked this legalistic, holy, by-the-book life, if, if they, 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 they who, who saw Jesus walk the earth and saw the miracles were ultimately condemned for not knowing who God was, how much more us ordinary people? How much more us who haven't spent Years and years of our lives from an early childhood studying and memorizing scripture. How much more us who, who, who've never abided by the law of Moses. How much more us Gentile sinners. If the pinnacle of human religiosity was unable to, to meet the holy standard of God, and we're still declared ignorant of who God was. How much more us? I believe that's the point that John is trying to make here. This is the darkness of the world. That the most holiest of people in this world, of society, still amounts to nothing in relationship with God. These, these two were judged ignorant of their in ignorant of who God was, lacking a relationship with him. But again, this is the darkness, this is the dark world that Christ was stepping into to bring his light, to illuminate, to offer light to, to give life to. This is the darkness that made the light of Christ necessary. Back then and even today. And so the hope for us this morning is to discuss the characteristics of those living in darkness. The depravity of man that, that we see through the examples of the Pharisees in our passage. To, to not just understand why Jesus says what he says to them in our passage. But to better understand even the context of our current world. The, the world we live in. And why the gospel... Uh, and why the gospel is so hated and so rejected by mankind, by the world today. But as, we, as I mentioned earlier, to remind us, for those of us in Christ, to remind us of the darkness that we came from, so that the light of Christ would shine all the more, that he would be glorified all the more. That's the hope for us this morning. Again, to, to put on us the weight of sin once more. Because just as Paul talks about in Romans where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin be bitter once more and Christ be sweet. So let's talk about this. Why, why did these people reject the light of Christ, right? Why did, why, what was, it, what was about, what was, what was in them that caused them to reject the light of Christ, the, the light that Christ was offering? Well, first and foremost, those in darkness replace the good of God. Those in darkness replace the good of God. Let's look at, our, look at our passage again, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We talked about this last week as mentioned. Right? This is a great hope. This is a great promise People who are living in darkness, Jesus has come to lead out of that, to give direction, to, to, to declare God's presence in the world. 
And of course, as we talked about, to give protection against death and sin and, and the enemy. There's nothing bad about that statement. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They completely overlook the good that Jesus was inviting them to. They completely overlook it and, and go straight to a critical and legalistic response. You're bearing witness about yourself. See, the first characteristic of human depravity is a skewed morality. Very simple. You have a skewed morality in, in, in our depraved state. And we see this in the world, right? Good is bad. Bad is good. Evil is accepted. Righteousness is shunned. Truth is called hate speech. And lust is called love. And pride is to be flaunted. And murder is a right. Theft is reparations. The Bible is very clear. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. There's a judgment coming to our world. In fact, I believe we're already in that judgment. The other day on the news, I was... I was I was watching um, the, the president of the, of the free world, President Biden. And he was saying how stopping children from transitioning to another gender is sinful. Straight from his mouth. That it's sinful to stop children from mutilating and castrating their bodies, the bodies that God created in them. That's the leader of the free world. Calling it sinful. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, it should, not, it should not surprise you. That's human depravity. Calling what is evil good and what is good sinful. We see this. In, it's, the word of God is very clear in, in the, reading, the reasoning for this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, that's where it starts. Human depravity starts with a heart that refuses to see God as God. It refuses to elevate God as Lord and Master and Creator and honor Him with all that He deserves. And as a result of that is ingratitude. A result of that is not being thankful for the things that God has declared good. Not being thankful for the things that God has given us by God's standard is good. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Here's the result of that. He go, Paul continues, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, ultimately what happens 
When the depraved human being says God is no longer God, he denies the, the majesty, the infinite beauty, beauty and glory of a holy, holy, holy God, and then exchanges it, he replaces it with things resembling creation. A distorted image of God's creation. That's essentially what idolatry is. It's replacing the good of God, the glory of God. Namely, his, the, the help we get from him, the blessings we get from him, the comfort, the satisfaction, the, the, the hope, the salvation that we get from him with things of this world. It's diverting the recognition and the worship and the adoration and the praise that we just sang about, even the pursuit in life to, from God to things resembling creation, and sometimes even to ourselves. That, that's what we see with the Pharisees. They were so consumed in their titles, in their accolades, in their self-righteousness, that when the Son of God, God incarnate, came to them, they did not see the good. They were their own idols. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, we can fall under that same judgment. We can fall under the same judgment as the Pharisees when our ministry, the things we do, the, the, our ideology, our praxis, our image in church become what we worship, become the reason why we come to church to keep that image up. It, it, when, when that becomes more important to maintain. And that's not even including the many other idols that we have in our lives. Many other idols that we can have as believers in our lives. Parents, your children can be idols. For everything you do is for your children. Or everything that, where you even miss out on church because you got soccer practice. Because the kids have to sleep early. Who is it that you're following? Who is it that you're living for? Young professionals. Your job, your career, money. Finding a spouse even. Those can be idols in your life. The things that you pursue and the things that you live for. All of that. All that simply starts by, not, by refusing, replacing the good that God has to offer with other things in this world. Other things that we think is good. Uh, you know, whenever we think about the fall of man and when, when Eve was tempted in the garden, it's so interesting that when she saw the fruit, it says that it was good to her eyes. And oftentimes that's how it is with the temptations and the idols in our lives. It's good to our eyes. And that's how it works. We, we often trade the good that God has to offer with what's good to our eyes. A good question to ask us in this moment is to, whatever it is that you deem good in your life, is it good to your eyes or is it good to God? 
Because if it's only good to your eyes, then it's a good sign that that's an idol. Something that you have replaced the goodness of God for. In truth, man in its depravity cannot see the good of God. In fact, that's our next point here. Those in darkness reject the truth of God. Those in darkness reject the truth of God. Back to our passage in verse 13. The Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He's, again, the things that Jesus is saying here, he's already mentioned and he's already taught back in chapter 7. If you recall those sermons where Jesus was teaching the people how to discern what is true. But then he gets to the very heart of the issue in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, it's important to say here that it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't saying that he doesn't judge. It's already been established throughout the gospel or even the previous chapters of John that he does, in fact, judge. John chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The context of, of verse 15 is, is as, we, as we see it in that, in that passage, is, is judging according to the flesh. Jesus is calling the Pharisees out by saying, you judge according to the flesh. The continuation of that is saying, I judge no one according to the flesh. That's what Jesus' point is there. Jesus already talked about this in regards to, uh, again, in the previous chapter, chapter 7, in regards to rumors circulating around him uh, about breaking sabbatical laws. In John chapter 7, verse 24, he says to the people a very similar statement. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. So exactly what the Pharisees were doing. You judge according to the flesh. What you see, what is material, what is before you, I don't judge according to the flesh. Jesus is saying this is a call to look beyond, to discern spiritually, not by sight. That, that's, that, that is what he was talking about in, in chapter 7 to the normal people. He's talking now to the Pharisees who, again, who have searched Scripture all their lives. They're only seeing it face value. They're only seeing the words. They're only seeing what was in front of them. Look what Jesus says in, afterwards in verse, um, verse 16 to 17. He says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And then he goes on to say, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Jesus pointing to their ignorance of the law that they worshipped, that they were so legalistic to, that was most important to them. Again, because they were seeing it at face value, they weren't discerning spiritually. Even if, and it's a, that's why later Jesus says, you don't actually know God. 
despite having known the word of God, despite having read and studied scripture, you don't actually know God. The heart of those living in darkness, their natural man, rejects the truth of God. That's the reality of it. In fact, is unable to discern, to understand the truths of God. That's why even after their years of study, these Pharisees still did not know God. Because they're in their natural state, they're still in the flesh. Hence why they were judging things in the flesh. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are fully to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Oftentimes when we talk about the depravity of man, there's a question that's regularly asked. If, if man is depraved in their sin nature and is unable to, or unable and cannot understand the things of God or even choose the things of God, why are, they, why are we held responsible? Why, why judge him so? It's like, you know, it's like c- condemning a fish for not being able to breathe water. I mean, sorry, to breathe air. It's not in his nature to breathe air. So why, why condemn? Same, same, similarly, why condemn the depraved man if it's not in their nature to choose the things of God or, or understand the things of God? Why judge them so? Well, see... Man's inability to choose and understand the things of God is rooted in the rejection of God. Simply put, as a preacher said, man cannot because man will not. Very simple. In Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, by their natural state, suppress the truth of God. Those in darkness actively suppress the truth. The original Greek is kathekonton. Kathekonton. To restrain, to hinder, to actively prevent the truth of God. That's what humanity in sin nature does to the things of God. Sinners are not simply condemned by their actions, but because of their will. Because of their sin nature, they actively will and actively work against the truth of God, to resist it, suppress it, suppress the things of God. Romans 8 verse 7 says exactly this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, God's law, law indeed it cannot. Again, man cannot because it will not. Because he wills not. The church understand, you know, when, when we have friends and family, when we address the world and the world criticizes us, or the world is hostile towards us and, and, and our loved ones is, is, is offended by the gospel, understand it's a sin nature that is actively rejecting and suppressing the truths of God. That hates the very, the, the very truths of God, the good things that God has to offer. 
Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for this very thing. They studied the law all their lives. And even in their study, they remained ignorant and blind to the truths of God. They did not recognize, they did not spiritually discern. They were judging according to the flesh. They did not even hear the offer of salvation that, God, that Christ offered them as the light of the world. They were actively suppressing and rejecting the truth of God. And here comes the final verdict. In verse 19 of our passage. They said to him, therefore, even after everything that Jesus has said, where is your father? Still judging according to the flesh. You have a witness, okay? Show us, where is your father? Thinking that Jesus was referring to his earthly father. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Like, again, an explicit declaration that he and the Father were one, that he had equal nature and power and authority and judgment as the, the, the Father. But this went right over the heads of the Pharisees. See, what's interesting is the language that Jesus is using here. You, you neither know me nor know my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. The language that he is using here is that of relationship. The knowing, the language of knowing denotes a relationship, an intimacy. Jesus is saying to, to the Pharisees that you don't know my father because you don't have a relationship with him. You don't know me because you don't have a relationship with me. Again, he's, he's speaking to the Pharisees who have studied and memorized Scripture all their lives. Who've studied the law back and forth, every letter, every, every jot, every, every, every title in the Word of God. And yet, they completely miss the point about loving God with all their hearts, with all their minds, with all their strength, all their soul. He completely missed the relationship part. See, those in darkness, ultimately what's happening here is that those in darkness refuse the love of God. Refuse the love of God. Sure, they knew Scripture, the various names of God in the Old Testament. They knew stories, all the stories of what God had done to, for the Jewish people in ancient times. But there's a great deal of difference about, uh, between knowing about someone and knowing someone intim intimately and relationally, personally. It's a huge difference. If I said, hey, you know what? I know, uh, I don't know, one of these modern-day actors that everyone loves, Brad Pitt or something. I don't know how everyone feels about him. But if I said, hey guys, I know Brad Pitt, you would automatically think, yeah, everyone knows Brad Pitt, right? He's that famous actor guy. It's a whole different ball game when, when, when you say that, you know, you know him, you, you have a relationship with him, you have a friendship with him. It's not enough to simply know God. You have to understand that. 
It's not enough to simply know God. In the, in the, book, of, in the book of James, it says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. One, one preacher said that all of hell is orthodox. <laughs> because everyone in hell today knows that there is a God. And they are intimately aware of his holiness and his wrath and his judgment. All of hell is orthodox. But again, it's not simply enough to know him. And it's the reason why we must preach the gospel day and night, every week at the pulpit. It's why we must talk about the depravity of man and our sin nature. Because, listen, many churchgoers in modern day Christendom are unsaved because their heads are full, their hands are busy, but their hearts are far from him. Jesus himself says, many will come to me in that day. Saying, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to know him. This is the Pharisees, and this is the Pharisees' flaw. Because they knew God, but they refused to love him. Because real love requires change. It requires repentance of sin. A change in attitude, in lifestyle. It requires death to self. It requires a, a daily taking up your cross to follow him. A, a heart change. Listen, if I said to my wife, I love you beyond anything else in the world, but then I did everything that she hated, lived a lifestyle that was completely opposite of what she believed in, that contradicted all her values, is that love? No. Clearly, the only reason to be in that relationship is because I want something out of it. To get what I want. It's not genuine love. In reality, fallen humanity hates God and refuses his love. That's, that's the reality of it. It's not simply a refusal of what is good or what is truth, but more importantly, what is, it is a refusal of love. You know, there's this great misconception about hell in that there are unbelievers, there are lost, burning in the lake of fire, and, 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 and they have this mentality that if only I had a second chance, I would choose God. The reality of hell is that even those sinners who are there this day are still hating and gnashing their teeth at God. Jesus says that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth, bearing your teeth like an animal against the holy God. Hell is full of haters. Who still hate God, who refuse the love of God. 
So, you know, just to summarize, those in darkness, why they rejected Christ, these Pharisees, even the lost today, because they replaced the good of God. They, they, instead of seeing the good that God has for them, they, they would rather turn to things of creation or things resembling creation, things that they deem good and pleasurable and, and gives them happiness. And they rather turn to that. They replace the good of God. Not only that, but they re- outright reject the truth of God. They suppress it. They deny it. And finally, those in darkness, the reason why Jesus was rejected by these group of Pharisees is because they refused the love of God. They refused it. This is the context in which the light of the world steps in. This is the context in which Christ comes. And he invites sinners to follow him, to follow his light, to experience his good, to know his truth, to receive his love. And, you know, as we say every week, if this is you this morning, if you have yet to follow after the Savior, to commit your life to Him, to say that He is Lord, that He is Master of your life, to repent of sin, that that today is a day of salvation, that we pray that you would do so today. You won't find any joy. You won't find any happiness in the world. Nothing, Nothing that compares to Christ. The truth to the joy, the good, the love that he offers. But listen, if you think that these, these three things that we talked about today is only the condition of the loss, if you're a believer today and you're thinking you're in your chair like, man, you know, I'm glad I'm saved and I'm glad that I'm not struggling with those things anymore. The reality is, don't be fooled. Even as believers, we are still prone to those things, still prone to replace the good of God for the good that we see in this world, still prone to reject the truth of God, to believe a lie that comforts and placates us, still prone to refuse the love of God, to run after other things so that we never have to change. Even though we have already been given a new nature, even though we've already been brought out of darkness, our flesh is still conditioned to think and act and behave like we're still in the dark. And if you're a believer this morning who has been walking with the Lord faithfully, You know this to be true. You know that the life of the believer isn't perfect. That once you have been converted, once you've made your confession, that everything doesn't stay all peach mango pie and it's all clear skies and your faith is just going uphill and you're becoming more like Jesus day by day. You know that there's ups and downs. You know that there's struggles. And if anything, this word of the Lord this morning ought to 
remind you of our own of your own weaknesses this morning. Again, of how much you need the Lord to sustain you, to preserve you, to preserve your faith, to preserve your walk with Him. A, a real, a real child of God will struggle in this life through the flesh. Paul, Paul did. And we see that. He, he says in Romans chapter 7, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of sin? Listen, brothers and sisters, that ought to be our heart day by day as we take up the cross daily. There is a struggle with sin. There is a struggle with our past love. There is a struggle with our flesh. It's a good indication that, that, that we have truly grasped the weight of sin, the wrath of God, the holiness of God. And I love, I love Paul's conclusion in, in that passage. He says, again, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our only hope, brothers and sisters, in this life. That is the only plea that we have in this life, our only assurance that despite here in this life we are struggling in the flesh, still struggling in sin, still struggling in the, the consequences and the effects of our dark past, our hope, our bright hope is Jesus Christ our Lord. That one day he will return and sin will be no more. Our, our, our response should be simple this morning, church. First and foremost, we examine ourselves. We truly see if we are actually in the faith. Because again, listen, you could, you could have been raised up in the church. Gone to Sunday school all your life. Gone to Bible school and... Known scripture, day, uh, known scripture back and forth from Genesis to Revelation. And, but your heart can still be far from God. All head knowledge. Examine yourself to truly see if you are in the faith. In addition to that, if... Just as Paul mentioned in that passage, knowing the struggle that we have in the flesh and in sin, while we are still here in this world, if we feel the weight of it, if we feel the struggle of it, the response should be that we cling closer to our Savior, to grasp tighter to the cross of Christ. Knowing again that that is our only plea, our only defense, the only thing that stands between us and a holy, holy, holy God. 
knowing that it is only by his will and by his power that we can overcome our natural inclinations, our flesh. You know, all these self-help preachers out there have it so backwards. Claiming that, you know, we have what it takes. You have the potential. We can do it because Jesus saved us and now we're strong and now we're all this. And Again, that's not the reality that we are to live as believers. It's not in strength. In fact, it's not in, in this, this display of bravado and power and, and look at my potential and look at what I can do now. But always and forever until Christ returns or we go home, the, 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 our, our greatest plea and our greatest demonstration of power is in our weakness. Just as Paul says, uh, when he was struggling in his own flesh, in 2 Corinthians, he says, uh, but Christ says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my what? Not strengths, not my talents, not my gifts, not my potential, but in my weaknesses. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not by our strength. It's not by our potential. But what Christ can do in our weakness, through our weakness. And listen, what I'm learning Church, is oftentimes, it's not, in our weakness, Christ doesn't make us strong, but it's in our weakness, and through that struggle, he uses that even. Oftentimes, we think that, it, that you know, we're struggling with sin, we're struggling with suffering, and then afterwards, we, we, we ask for help from the Lord, and then we think, the Lord's going to give me strength now to overcome this. Sometimes, sometimes, it's in the suffering that we're called to abide in. in the weaknesses. Because it's in the weaknesses, it's in the sufferings, it's in the deepest, darkest valleys that sincere and genuine praise and worship and love for the Savior comes from. And despite, I'm, despite the trials that you're going through in life, despite the sufferings, the hardships you're going through in life, you can still Cling to the cross of Christ. You can still cling to the Savior and say, I love you, Lord. That's the kind of relationship, that's the kind of heart, kind of follower that Christ wants to cultivate in his people. It's through our weaknesses we find strength. It is only through Christ and what he has done on the cross that we find victory in. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content.
Until next time, stay blessed.